0: I think music and performing arts, you know, and I may be preaching to the choir, has tremendous power to open us up to diversity and difference and culture. And I think the kind of approach that we take, you know, as a museum and working with material culture and thinking about music in broader ways, it's just a natural evolution. You can't help learn about another culture or another way of life or another sexual orientation or another experience. If you really, you know, get behind the weeds of what music is all about.
1: Welcome back to Sound Expertise. I'm Will Robin, your host, and this is a podcast where I talk to my fellow music scholars about their research and why it matters. As a musicologist, I think a lot about the potential impact my job can have. And I don't think I'm alone in this. I think it's pretty common. There are these very measurable things like, okay, my journal article was downloaded by X number of people. Usually not a lot of people. Or I taught X number of students this semester. Or, you know, there's the immeasurable things, like I received a kind letter from a former advisee, or someone cited my dissertation for their own research. I think that folks in my field like to think what we do is important, but I think we are also hopefully acknowledging that our contributions to the world can be relatively modest. But, as I've said before, sometimes we can have a significant impact And in recent years, I've come to realize that one of us in particular might be making more of an impact than most of the rest of us combined, even though chances are you haven't heard of her. Dwandelin Reese, curator of music and performing arts at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. Dr. Reese has perhaps the most important job one can have as a scholar of music, providing a framework for understanding African American history, musical history in an extraordinarily high-profile museum at a time in which Black history and culture are under a nationwide assault. Many, many more people will come into contact with Dr. Reese's work at the museum's permanent Musical Crossroads exhibit than will sit in one of our classrooms or attend one of our conferences. The decisions she has made setting the stage for what music and the performing arts can be at the museum have huge ramifications. So I was very excited to talk to her today about her work at the museum. And I hope you enjoy this rich conversation with Dr. Dwandalin Reese on sound expertise. So I'd love to start by going way back to the lead-up of the opening of the National Museum of African American History and Culture in 2016 and your role in curating the music and performing arts collection. What did it kind of look like to begin imagining what the performing arts wing of the museum would look like and acquiring items for a museum with such significant ambitions?
0: Well, it first looked like a very daunting task because mm. that was just a lot of history to cover. And and to communicate that story to our visitors. So literally that first week, I was sitting here, I was like, you know, how am I going to do this? You know, it was I was going to do an exhibit, I was going to build a collection, and it was up for me to design and to conceive what have you. Um so the breadth of the topic was a little bit overwhelming. And I knew immediately I had to have some kind of guidelines in my own mind about how what was important to me about telling the story and what I could do that was somewhat comprehensive, but within you know g- a given square footage, knowing that you can't do everything but you want to give our average visitor some additional knowledge about African American musical history and performance. And and so I, I thought long and hard about that in 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 alignment with my my own research and my own interests, and came up with five themes that I used to really guide me. The first was, for me, it was it was important that this was a exhibit that was about African American music, but from a large scale about African American music making. What was important to me is that we weren't leaving out genres that were not necessarily, you know, originated in the Black community. Uh, I see. So many times when people talk about African-American music, they immediately go to jazz or blues and hip hop, and there's music making across the spectrum, and, and that is part of the history. So that was really important to me. And then, you know, along with that was just what makes African-American music unique. I mean, every musical genre that comes out of uh, a nation and country or what have you, or community has something unique about it. And then there are the commonalities about music. And for me, in thinking that through, it really is the specter of race that was created when the first enslaved were brought to these shores, that that traumatic um, separation, rupture, was the baseline for creating what would be an African American identity that was defined by race and that that rupture and and uh, people separated from themselves and their culture and creating something of their own to survive and sustain that. So you know whether you're talking about the blues or talking about hip hop you're talking about opera the the specter of of race even though it's a social construct still looms large even today right. in our conversations. So I went with that and then had five themes to help me think about the types of objects to look for and the types of themes that we could explore. And they were looking at the African roots, whatever those roots might be, whether they be performance techniques, um, musical instruments, or the roots, the framework and the conception of what an African American music is. What are those themes? Um, the second one, hybridity, which all musical performance there's it's a hybrid of influences, and and particularly in in the United States, um, agency, and this is more about self definition, not not just about social activism, but the liberatory practice of defining yourself for your own self and you know, being your own person and being allowed to be your own person musically and in the world. Uh, The overwhelming influence of mass media, uh, starting with the first popular entertainment in minstrelsy and and magazines, and then all the technologies that we have gone through up to this point that really uh, did a lot to spread African-American music, Black music around the world. And finally, the global impact and influence. Uh, I remember... You know, hearing from scholars say that a lot of times people around the world, their linkage to America is through Black music, and that's where they learn about America. But we, we know with all the genres from jazz to hip-hop to spirituals and gospel to classical musicians traveling around the world that there has been that impact and a perception about the United States. Right. So those yeah. were my, my five guiding posts, Yeah. so, so to speak. And so... You're sitting down with these
1: guiding posts. You know you've got some square footage of space, and like, was there one thing where you're like, "I know that is an item I want to have." Like, how? What was the early acquisition phase like? Thinking about, okay, I want to have this thing and this thing. The I I know you. The mothership is certainly one we'll we'll talk about because I'm curious about it. But yeah,
0: sure. I I think it was we just wanted to find objects um you know you had some designs i think it was also important that this was about african-american music that it wasn't a hall of fame so it wasn't just about the big artists or the big names that we wanted to get at the community level we wanted to get the local level and all about all all of this is about storytelling and how music has functioned in the african-american experience so we were pretty um we were were lucky to have people coming to us with with stories, with objects that they were aware of. Uh we certainly did our own outreach, reaching out to people, um, a combination of that. Um and we were pretty open. You know, to me, if something helps us tell a good story that gets yeah. some of those themes, then it's it's deserves to be in a national museum to help flesh that out. And that's part of our mission to do that, to you know, tell these stories, these real stories, and also the ones that haven't been heard as much. And those stories about music, we hear more about the celebrity of it th- rather than the on the ground, what's going on in the community of it. And all of that, It, it I see it as a real um, hold and you know, part of the pieces. So anything was gained at this point. Yeah,
1: yeah. And so can you give a couple examples of things you, you did acquire early on that were representative of, of that on the more on the ground versus kind of celebrity musician perspective? Or?
0: Oh, I wish I had my little cheat sheet here. <laughs> well, um, if you want to take a minute to find it, go for it. I'm, I'm trying to think of some. I think a lot of local local musicians in local communities across the nation that would have even regional or tangentially some national importance. I've learned a lot of jazz artists that have played with well-known jazz artists, local educators who have contributed to the scene and doing their own music programs. Um, Learned about a, a composer Hazel Harrison, um, it was just as, as much a learning exercise for me as anybody else i'm trying to think of some of those early mm-hmm. collections you're catching me off guard cuz now i'm, <laughs> I'm right asking there. about the early stuff yeah
1: yeah well maybe expand uh, expand that out a little bit from the early stuff like what are what are some of the most interesting objects that you acquired in the course of of building this this collection of materials or ones that are particularly important for you?
0: Well, they're interesting objects, and they're interesting stories. And they go hand in hand. There's one object uh, a gentleman from Atlantic City donated. It was his father's trumpet and the the plate for making his business card. And he was uh, a street performer, evangelical street performer, on the streets of Memphis. And so, you know, you tie religion to this story, and how people made their careers and and you know, reached out to people and build community. This is a man that doesn't have any national notice, but this is what was happening in real communities. So we have his trumpet is is on display, it's been on display since we've opened. We have, let's see, the the Marion Anderson outfit that we have right, that was right. one of those things. You know, it's interesting when I started my career, there weren't a lot of music museums. So collecting in this area was not as popular, you know, and you flash forward 30 years later, a lot of the stuff is housed someplace. So see, for a lot yeah. of things I didn't, you know, I knew this library had it here or this museum had it here or American history or you know, a neighbor across the street already had it. So it was trying to find where were those niches? And so I didn't think University of Pennsylvania has Marian Anderson's collection. So I just assumed there was nothing, you know, to bring into our collection. And this one was, and these is the interesting stories. It's 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 just by word of mouth or talking to the right people, or you find a story. So Denise Graves donated a dress that Marian Anderson gave her. Hmm. Um, so many uh, you know, our contemporary and older classical artists revered Ms. Anderson and would meet with her, and she was very generous with her time and and would sometimes give out her dress. So Denise Graves, who performed at our groundbreaking ceremony, told us she had this dress and she wanted to donate to the museum. And we uh we uh were happy to have it. And once we acquire an object, we do a lot of research on the object from its condition to who was its maker, where it was used. Um, this gown, Denise Graves did perform in at the 75th anniversary of the concert at the Lincoln Memorial. Mm, right. So it had that additional significance, in addition to belonging to Marian Anderson. So, in doing the research, we found that there was a little drama with the dress. When it was uh, sent to the cleaners before that event, that seventy-fifth anniversary event, and it came back in in shreds in some areas. So, oh my God! Um, Denise Graves, who's alum of the Duke Ellington School of the Arts, there was a, a a seamstress, a costume maker there, worked at the school, who helped and 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 saved, salvaged uh, what she was, and it looks great She put it back together and so in researching that and having an intern research that story we also tried to find some information about the maker and she was russian and we found that she'd made costumes for other ballets and things like that and so the next line of inquiry was to talk to the family so uh, the intern had connections to the family and reached out to the family and They told her what they could. There wasn't a lot, but they did mention that Jeanette DePriest, who's James DePriest's widow and James DePriest's doctor and Marion Anderson's nephew. um, She did mention to the intern that uh, Mrs. DePriest had a few more objects and things that she may be willing to donate. So I made a cold call, introduced myself and about the museum and she was familiar with the museum and she mentioned she did have this outfit and, um, she was interested in donating it to the museum. So I went from zero to a hundred and <laughs> one fell swoop. And it was one of those, a little bit of serendipity, but making those connections in this zigzag kind of way to get to a, his something with historical significance. Yeah, It yeah. just happened to be sitting in someone's home. And that was so much of our collection. Uh, that it wasn't necessarily out there in institutions. People had saved these things, um, recognizing their importance and their cultural significance. Either some of them were waiting for a place to give it to, or just, you know, felt when they knew this museum was being built, that this was the right place to tell that particular story.
1: Hmm. How, I mean, this, the process through which you got this dress seems very kind of elliptical in a way, but mm-hmm. in other in other cases, are you just kind of, did you put out like a big call? Like how how did you find these addicts with stuff in them for the most part?
0: A lot of times people found us. I think the museum, I joined in 2009 and our founding director started in 2005. So there was four years of work of getting the word out about the museum and, and very consciously we wanted... Uh, people to know that the museum was active even though we did not have a building
1: right, right. So
0: there had been exhibits, there have been programs, there have been town halls. so the much of getting the word out we were always acting as a museum even though we may not have the exhibits and, and the building I see. And that word of mouth, that publicity really went far in reaching out to people. Some people knew about the museum museum, some people didn't. But so much of curatorial work um, these days is is pounding the pavement, so to speak, um, making cold calls, introducing yourselves to people, what you're doing, why you're doing it, how, what they have or what talent they have, how that might fit into what you're doing and serving a larger mission, which is really to tell the history and, and perspective of African-Americans in this country.
1: Yeah. One of the, I think most striking objects in the exhibition is the Parliament Funkadelic
0: mothership.
1: And I think that's one of the most... Can you talk a little bit about how that came to be at the museum?
0: Well, that gets zigzaggy too. Sure. Um, You know, because when looking, we leave no corner unturned. There was an article in the Post, like a small little columnette, about the mothership being buried in, in Suitland, Maryland. Hmm. You know, one day. And I um, um, I had a colleague who was working on this exhibit with me, Kevin Strait. And he, I mentioned it because we, we look for leads. I said, you know, if you know some people, could you look into this and see if there's anything to it you know if we have to dig it up you know and find the mothership maybe we'll do that yeah um he had his own contacts and he managed to get connected to george clinton um that that first mothership did it was built as a prop so it wasn't built to last did did fall apart uh didn't exist but george clinton um had rebuilt one that he brought on tour with him. And it was sitting in his living room in his home in Tallahassee. So Kevin went down there and met with George Clinton and he was, uh, he was on board. You know, he understood what we were doing, um, where he fit in the history and was excited to see the mothership at the Smithsonian. And, you know, when we, when we got, when we arrived, and there was some per- press and publicity about it. I was really taken how um, how excited people were about it. Um, it. It told me a couple of things. Uh, first, that they saw that their, you know, popular culture, popular history, their their experiences with the mothership, you know, as as a fan of Parliament Funkadelic, you know, the whole Chocolate City thing in Washington D.C., that it meant something to them to have this come to the Smithsonian. So the Smithsonian still had this separation with the local community. And it, it, it told us we were on the right track. It's like validating these stories and these right, histories right. that you weren't, you know, 20 years ago, would there be a mothership in the Smithsonian exhibit? No. Um, and so it also changed the game about how people see museums themselves and what stories they tell. And with, with music, um, it's ripe with examples with that because so much is dealing with popular music and the like. And it does not necessarily or did not necessarily, you know, serve the vaunted halls of what should should be in the museum. So I was really, I was taken by the, the not only the object itself, but the dialogue around it.
1: Wow. Yeah. And so... You acquire this stuff. How do you kind of decide what goes on display, how to organize the exhibit? Like what are How, how did the kind of curator, curatorial part begin to emerge out of the themes that you've created and the stuff you've acquired?
0: Yeah, a lot of that, it becomes a real collaborative process once you bring on the designers and you talk about uh, you're, you're collecting, you're collecting, collecting, collecting like mad. And um, then you think about, okay, what do you have? How, how do you wanna tell the story? And what are the most important parts to tell the story? And then you think about what are the most, not only exciting or iconic objects, but you, you're gonna give people a little bit of what they're looking for and what they want to see, but you're also, it's an educational enterprise you want to tell people about things and learn facts and and knowledge that they they haven't uh uh heard before mm-hmm. so it, it really is a dance with all those things I, like there's some iconic things we knew we were going to use we knew we were going to use the mothership we knew we were going to use Chuck Berry's Cadillac um because those are big iconic you know, people make instant associations with things. And then as far as telling the story, um, I I had my issues with genres because they just they're they're kind of a product of the music industry and create these borders and boxes. But at the same time, we operate in society with genres and the music industry, so that's something our visitors um Um, remember and can relate to. So I didn't want to be locked into that. So I, I purposely, we, we picked, we had about 12 or 13 sections. So we picked several genres, stories to tell, but also several thematic stories to tell so that we could get to the lived experience of what this music was all about. So we had thematic areas such as, um, Let's see, global impact and influence, music on stage and screen. Um, we had another theme about the music industry um, and the neighborhood record store, which is my favorite, my brainchild that I really love. So that it once again, getting away from the Hall of Fame, you know, Hall of Fame has its place. But we wanted this to be something more than that, and more subs, more substantive in a way that people really understood what music fit in the culture and society. And then you talk, you you bring in the stories. We had a long list of the potential stories based on objects we had. Um, and when you work with the designers, you know they come with their own ideas, and you have to. Sure. There's a lot of conversation back and forth. Sometimes some disagreement uh what their view what they think the story is and and we really fought hard my team and my colleagues who are working with me um to t- stay true to our sense of purpose and being more holistic in our treatment of those stories and um it it's a mix of interesting objects obviously there were instruments costumes ephemera um what i like about what we do with our collecting is that it's not strictly you think music you're just going to collect instruments and scores sure we we think about music anything can be about music in so many ways it can be a record it can be uh, a fish toy you know marketing fishbone's latest album can be um a scribbled note on a piece of paper and so, what I what I I'm really intent in doing is that music to me is just a network of circles and activations that you know bring to life. They're brought to life by people and community. Nothing exists, you know. Even if you're going up on stage and performing a song, without your audience, there's nothing. Unless you're just performing for yourself, so those networks um, are very important. In, in a social, cultural, political scheme. And that's the beauty or espousing why music is so valuable to us in our daily lives. It's, it's uh, music and not music, but it means everything to what we are and activates so much. And so that our collecting is, is built around that ethos. Um, and the same thing is what I talk about in my book, which I hope we get to talk about Uh, Yeah,
1: Yeah, I want to ask you about your book soon. Um, (laughs) So tell me a little bit about, like you mentioned the mothership kind of helping you understand kind of what the response to that helping you understand what was valuable about this. But what how did it kind of feel when this opened? What was the response like? How much kind of validation of the exhibit as it stood did you feel versus oh I want to think about this differently that kind of thing
0: it was a little bit of both um it was it was exciting to see it all pull together I mean it was just you know the grandeur of it all and to see see all these stories on an even playing field so you know it wasn't just Chuck Berry's Cadillac but it was Elder Hunter's Roosevelt hunters horn, you know, still on the same floor. And, you know, my my greatest sense of pride is how people really receive that, how they um, connected with the objects and the stories in a variety of ways, um, particularly from uh, intergenerational conversations, uh, point of recognition, and even understanding some of the substance, for instance, some of our genre stories, it wasn't just a retelling of, you know, how many gold records you have with, with our genre stories. We wanted to talk about issues about regionality and sense of place, uh, sense of agency, identity, all these issues, institution making, um, community building. And so we, we, um, intentionally told our stories from those different points of view just really to show audiences that music your favorite song is so much more than what you hear on the radio um, yes. did you know that the motown artists went on these these trips in the south the Motown review and couldn't stay in the hotels or use the gas station facilities you know the that is also part of the story it's not just the part that you enjoy and that, to me, is is the biggest educational um, opportunity in teaching people to appreciate what African-American music is and about the African-American experience.
1: Can you talk a little bit about your kind of personal trajectory, how you came to be interested in scholarship and museum work in this area and eventually ended up at the Smithsonian?
0: Yeah, Um this crystallized for me in two ways. Uh, in my undergrad years, I took a course. I, I majored in music and American studies. And I took a course on um, called Music Mirror of Society. And we were looking with uh, Haydn, Beethoven, Mozart, and I think Schubert. Um, but it wasn't a strict musicology course. We were actually looking at the society they worked under and, and it, you know, instead of doing just theory or musicology really opened a door for me that this was just as much as of their, their cultural output, their musical output, these stories of the patrons and all of this um, that really kind of, crystallized for me that music in a social and cultural framework, how fascinating that was and how much you could learn not only about the musicians, but of a given time period. So I was really excited about that. And then I got to Michigan and I was doing a master's there, uh, still doing American culture, but also, you know, doing a lot with the music school and um, professor there, Richard Crawford, um, And I just got more excited about it and started doing my own research Uh, a lot of music topics, civil rights songs, Joan Baez, uh, that's where I got interested in Ethel Waters, who ended up being my dissertation topic. Um, But they also had a museum practice program. Mm. And I liked the idea for me, you know, education was important in my family, but I always thought you know, if you have the privilege to be educated, you should also give back and share what you're learning. I mean, if what if, if if it's not getting out to the public, what kind of impact is it really having? And I saw museums as a way of having real world impact in real time and taking scholarship and communicating it to general audiences. So I was a real novice there. I was with a bunch of art people and me interested in doing in music, but that's where I really, that's where it crystallized for me. And I ended up doing an internship here at the Smithsonian. So that's when I first got familiar. I was at the national portrait gallery in their education um, division for a semester. And then I came over to American history and worked with John Hasse, uh, a curator emeritus, but um, just when they acquired the Duke Ellington collection and getting you know, front row seat, hands-on work doing that. I did some work for um, Mercer Ellington, you know, copying scores and things like that. But that's what really wet my appetite, that this could be a career something to do. And, and there was a place, you know, American history really led the way in, in collecting, uh, particularly in jazz, in, in doing that kind of work and finding a place for music in museums. And how did you get from there to where you are now um, back to the zigzag. Um, I I've worked in a combination of music related museums and history museums. you know a lot of times it was staying gainfully employed um, when I finished my internship at the Smithsonian I went back to Michigan for a while and uh, ended up at the Motown Museum. So I was their first professional museum staff person. This was a oh, wow. museum started by Barry Gordy's sister, Esther Gordy Edwards. And so I was there for a year. I, um, cataloged all the collection. So I was bringing all my freshly minted knowledge and museum practices to the fore. Um, and then from there, I, I, dovetailed into some history museum work and I ent- ended up doing a lot of community-based work. So a lot of my ethnographic experience was working on the ground. This was a time when museums were just starting to think about their audiences outside of the usual people who come to their building. And so I worked on several projects looking African-American communities, um, also Chinese-American communities. So I worked in New Jersey. And then I made my way to the Brooklyn Historical Society. Uh, worked on West Indian Day Carnival and a variety of projects there. Um, and then decided to go back to school because I wanted to get back into my music stuff and went to NYU and, um, did a degree in, uh, performance studies. And so I had picked up my research in Ethel Waters, but kind of had fleshed that out, um, and did my dissertation there. And, In that interim period, I also continued to consult and got interested in grant making, uh, got some internships there. And once I was finished with my doctorate, I made my way to DC via the NEH, National Endowment for the Humanities as a program officer. And I was there for nine years and the museum was building, and then this position for curator of music and performing arts. And I felt like I had come full circle
1: yeah, wow.
0: And I applied and I got the job. And so I've been here some going on 14 years.
1: Wow, wow, yeah. So tell me a little bit about the book. So the book is called Musical Crossroads. Uh, which
0: Musical is... Crossroads, Stories Behind the Objects of African American Music. And the book is, there are two things I wanted to accomplish. Uh, the first thing is really to talk about a material culture of music. Uh, Material culture uh, is is a discipline and methodology. It's well used in history, archaeology, folklore. But there hasn't been a lot of discussion about it in music. And what we do within museums and a lot of our libraries is that we're dealing with the material culture of music. And when I say that, that includes archives. So we're not using just photographs and scores as illustrations. We're actually looking at the the object as a primary source, a source of study. And so I I wanted to introduce and flesh out that idea um, with our collection. Um, So that was my goal too. And then what I talked about earlier, these networks of activations that I talk about, these concentric circles of talking about music in society and how the music story is related to the record store owner who lives in the neighborhood or the piano teacher who lives there. I really wanted to show how music stretches beyond, you know, the immediate as listener or, or viewer. So we, it's a deeper dive than the exhibit because you can just use more words. Um, but it tells, it, it shows how you can take an object and locate stories and also often, quite often unknown stories that you wouldn't, have even thought about to come across in in telling stories about music.
1: Yeah. Wow. How how much has the exhibit changed since the museum opened in 2016 and how much is the book kind of reflecting that aspect of of the the evolution of of the museum's performing arts?
0: Well, from logistical process, we we change we do rotations about one once a year. Uh, where we'll rotate maybe 15 to 20 objects, and those decisions are um, guided by loans or conservation needs um, or just sometimes an opportunity to tell a different story. uh, We we got behind with COVID, of course, when the museum was closed. So the the things are rotated out, so um, we'll have a new rotation. Our rotations are usually in the summer where we bring in new objects. And we've, we've done that over the last six years. And the next question, how it aligns with the, um, the book allows us kind of to go in a different direction. Um, you're limited with a, um, you know, our, the exhibit is 6,200 square feet. You know, there's And you get 75 word labels. Yeah. <laughs> what can you do with that? this you know we can have stories of 500 words <laughs> and things like that and then i i reconceptualized it because i i wanted to to mix up the cups on the table a little bit just to show the connections and and you know the ripple effects of these stories and how they relate to other stories so the the book really takes you deeper in in different ways than the exhibit does And, you know, we talk about eventually we will, we have something called the searchable museum where we're bringing all our exhibits on digital. And that is going to allow us to really uh, make connections in ways that you couldn't in the book or on the exhibit floor. Very excited about that.
1: I don't know how much you can speak to this as a federal employee, but, you know, there's a current, currently an ongoing dangerous assault on the teaching of black history and culture in this country. And I'm wondering how you see the museum responding to this in some way, and and what the role of the performing arts represents in, in that conversation as well.
0: Well, I, I see the re- museum's response is doing what it always does, which is affirm and teach the history and culture of African Americans. All, all our programming is that content, and we're lucky and we're a place for audiences to come get that content and come learn those stories. Yeah, and and we will continue to do that as part of our mission, not only as this museum, but as as part of the mission of the Smithsonian for. The diffusion and education of all people. Um, I, I think music and performing arts, you know, and I may be preaching to the choir, has tremendous power to open us up to 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 diversity and difference and culture. And I think the kind of approach that we take you know, as a museum and working with material culture and thinking about music in broader ways, um, it's just a natural evolution. You can't help learn about another culture or another way of life or another sexual orientation or another experience um, if you really, you know, get behind the weeds of what music is all about. And I think you see that... I. I I hope you definitely see that in our exhibitions and in our institutions and here at the Smithsonian, some of our other other units as well. But, um, you know, it's also part of that, you know, where the arts and music in in our curriculum today and why why is so important that that's part of our life and how much it speaks to our daily lives in a way that shapes who we are. Right. It's one of those things is that the things that are most important, we take for granted. And I think music is music and art are two of those things that we do. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you so much for speaking with me. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, it was just fun.
1: Many thanks to Dwendoline Reese for that fascinating conversation. You can read more about her work over on our website, soundexpertise.org. And I hope you attend the museum if you haven't already. As always, our inbox is open. Email us at SoundExpertise00 at Gmail if you have any questions or thoughts, or find me on Twitter and Insta at SeatedOvation. If you have the opportunity, please also leave a review of our show on Apple Podcasts so we can get some more eyeballs and earballs. I don't know if earballs are a thing, but you know, get more people listening to the show. Many thanks to D. Edward Davis for his production work. You can check out his music on SoundCloud at Warm Silence. And thank you to Andrew Del Antonio for transcribing our episodes to make them more accessible. This episode of Sound Expertise was recorded at the National Foreign Language Center with support from University of Maryland's School of Music. And next week on Sound Expertise, and our season is almost at an end, The Science of Silence. It would be a bit, um, hubristic of us to think that just with, you know, some experiments we could resolve this millennia-old question about whether we perceive silence. But if we change the question a little bit, but still respect its origins, maybe we can make some progress on it. See you then.